Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, Feely Humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 138 on Erasing Shame with DJ Chuang. DJ and I explore the journey of naming our feelings, finding the motivation for living, DJ's bipolar disorder diagnosis and story, and the shame that persists in mental health and Asian cultures. Uh, We talk a lot about shame in this. We talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about minority mental health. We talk about bipolar disorder, uh, DJ being Chinese-American, manic shopping sprees, feeling misunderstood, and all sorts of other things. It's a really good conversation with my pal and friend, DJ Chuang. I hope you enjoy it. Um, a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, Yumi Empathy now has a voicemail. You can share a message and I will comment on it here in the intro. And we got one. We got a, a short, sweet, beautiful one. Um, I'm going to play it right here. Hi. Hope everyone's having a good day. I just wanted to um, send some love out into the universe. I think uh, now more than ever, especially for me at least, um, it's well needed. So have a beautiful day, everyone, and hope this brightens it a little bit. Bye. And what a lovely, lovely message that was. Thank you for sharing that little message of hope. Um, Sometimes we need that message. Sometimes we need a little hopefulness. Sometimes we need uh, to remind ourselves and remind you guys that, you know, life is worth living, that we have each other. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in our own stories. We get so caught up in our own identities and in our heads. And we forget that there are people out there just like us. There are people out there just like us in the sense that they're feely humans, right? They're, they may be struggling in the same way. They may be going through the same experience. They may be feeling the same things that we're feeling. And um, we're not going to know it if we don't talk about it. We're not going to know it if we don't reach out and be vulnerable. And so thank you, uh, Anonymous Caller, for sharing that uh, little message of hope and and sending that joy and love out into the universe. That's, uh, that is needed, uh, especially, yes, now during these times and all, all the times. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, you too can leave uh, a voice message on Yumi Empathy. 
Again, um, I don't think I, I've said the voicemail number, but it's 949-346-4563. Again, that's 949-346-4563. Leave me a message. Uh, send me a question. Anything you want to share, and I will uh, answer. I will comment on it. Uh, whatever you want to share. Um, just be kind, as always. Um, reminder also to leave a review and rating for Yumi Empathy in Apple Podcasts. We're at 99 reviews now. Can we get to 100? I think we can. Please do so. Um, that would be amazing. It's a, it's a free way to support the show. And speaking of supporting the show, I recently created and I posted about it on Feely Human, um, uh, Feely Human's Instagram, at Feely Human. If you go to feelyhuman.co, feelyhuman.co slash support, I posted something called 10 Ways to Support Feely Human. And there are some financial ways, there are some non-financial ways, and there are ways, most importantly, um, that are just being being part of the community. They're just like engaging in the community and engaging in being a feely human, which you are. So uh, check that out at 10 Ways to Support Feely Human. The URL is feelyhuman.co slash support. I'll make, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes, uh, links and all that. Um, I think that's it. I'm not feeling great today. Physically, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, my head is fuzzy and I'm, I, I can't not sort of think about, you know, all the weird high estrogen and high FSH that I'm feeling, like maybe it's related to that or maybe it's something else, but, uh, my brain is fuzzy and it feels weird and I had to reschedule a recording I had today and that felt bad and I felt guilty about that, but I guess I got to look out for me and, take care of me. I don't do well feeling sick. I physically and I I think it's a maybe it's a remnant of like um sort of eating disorder times and and wanting to kind of move and feeling like just blah when I'm not moving and and maybe that's something I need to challenge myself on or uh maybe it's just sitting and and maybe it's a, it's a bit of sort of anxiety about just kind of sitting in the house all day. I don't know. But I, I'm working through it, and um, hopefully I'll feel better uh, in the next couple of days. But anyways, I don't know why I'm sharing all that. I love you guys. I'm so glad you're listening. I'm so glad you're here. Please tell a friend about Yumi Empathy. Um, please follow the show on Instagram at Yumi Empathy, and follow Feely Human at Feely Human. And of course, join the community, feelyhuman.co. That's feelyhuman.co. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Enjoy this episode with DJ Chuang on Erasing Shame. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. 
On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm bummed we're not recording this in person, but oh so elated to be here with strategy consultant, fellow podcaster, and foe to shame everywhere, DJ Chuang. Hello, DJ. <laughs> Hello, Noah. I'm so glad to connect with you online. Yes, absolutely. Um, the listeners should know that DJ and I have met in person. Uh, DJ's uh, lovely partner in life, Rochelle, uh, and I did some did some work uh, at her classroom, uh, and it was just lovely. And so um, I'm just excited to reconnect again, friend. Thank you. Uh, my wife, Rochelle, and I have been married 25 years, and we got to celebrate uh, in quarantine. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, before we get into your story, DJ, I always start off the show with an emotional check-in. How how's the week been? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good today. Uh, I uh, I gave in to the temptation of waking up in the middle of the night uh, mm-hmm. against my better judgment, which uh, I'm supposed to stay asleep or at least stay laying down when I feel uh, awake in order to modulate my mood swings. But um, I gave in to to uh, wake up, read a bunch of articles and surfed around for about an hour, went back to sleep. And I'm doing okay. I have my coffee. And uh, in this very strange season, I've been doing well overall. So very grateful for that. That's good to hear. And what, like, what helps, uh, I, you know, I, we're, the listeners should know, you know, we're still in the time of uh, the coronavirus pandemic and, and mm-hmm. here in California, you know, things are shutting down again because we've recently had another big spike, which is, you know, upsetting and frustrating, you know, on a lot of levels. But um, I'm finding that things that, kind of ground us and, and, you know, sort of take us back to some sense of normalcy helps. Are, are there things like that in your life that help you? Um, I haven't added any new uh, things to my routine. I've kind of um, consciously noted the things that I need to do to maintain my health, mm. which are, um, a regular sleep cycle. So I sleep about nine hours a night plus an afternoon nap on most days. And then uh, I, uh, I try to get my body moving uh, mm. in terms of at least a walk yeah. uh, every day. Uh, before COVID, I was on a more intensive, high interval, high intensity interval training with a boutique fitness center called Orange Theory. 
And um, that's been closed. They're reopening, but I'm reluctant to go back because of the germs being around. Not that I'm a germaphobe, yeah. but um, I, I just don't want to test that boundary at this yeah. time. Yeah. And uh, I eat what I enjoy. Um, let's see what else. I'd get out of the house at, at least once a day because being home alone is not good for my moods. And then well, I'll stay on my medication and get my mm. talk therapy. So those are kind of the main things that has kept me healthy for the past couple of years. Yeah, nice. Yeah, those are all things that that helped me as well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, <laughs> this is kind of a silly question. Did you choose Orange Theory just because you love the, the color orange? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, orange, <laughs> I dubbed orange my favorite color when we moved to Orange County in 2007. <laughs> and um, because we live in Orange County. And also, orange is the secondary color. Uh, secondary color of my alma mater, Virginia Tech, which is maroon oh, and orange. Yeah. And it's made shopping easier. Uh, so anything orange, I I can just spot in the store very quickly, whether it's shoes or uh, computer uh, covers, um, clothing. And um, it's easy for me to network and connect with people in a crowd because there's usually very few people wearing orange and I'm Asian American, so it's easy to spot me mm. in a crowd of the thousand, and then I can connect with people a lot easier. There you and go. My wife and son that. also have colors. So my wife's color is purple. My son's color is yellow. Mm. And so, like when we go to state fair, we can find each other very easily. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I I think it makes it simpler in a way. It it you know reduces. Um, you know, choice fatigue. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Yes. Um, so <laughs> right now in uh, quarantine, I'm building the third fence uh, at our house, uh, the third fence in a matter of a year and a half. Um, the, the house we live in, it's, it's older and the, the, the fences are also very old or were old, but um as a, as a result of building fences from scratch, I'm today I'm very uh, I'm achy. Uh, mm. <laughs> my body my body is achy, but there's a certain um, like it makes me like I like when my body is a little achy. It makes it like it reminds me that I you know did work and it's like a tangible result of like putting in hard work, which mm. I it's something that helps me like emotionally. Um, you know, a lot. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that right now. That is good. That is good. Yeah. It's easy for us feely people, if I may say that, to uh, stay in our head too much. And what's helped me in a similar way is just to get out of the house, get my body moving. So getting my body moving helps me to get myself out of my head because I can easily get stuck and spiral there. Yeah. Yeah, let me ask you about that because I I I definitely relate to that immensely, and and I and getting out of my head is a good thing for me for sure, but I also like I try I sometimes struggle with like a more kind of like mindful approach to like exercise for instance like, <laughs> and I I think that that can be a a grounding thing, um, but. 
for me, like, I don't know, I, I just need to kind of get sometimes just get lost in the moment, like whether if I'm, you know, hiking or something, I just need to kind of like, go off into imaginary land, rather than like, okay, how is my body feeling in this moment? And how am I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, even though I know that that's good, sometimes I just need to kind of pretend I'm a hobbit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Totally agree. Um, well, DJ, uh, before we get into kind of the work you're doing now and, 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 um, and, and where you are now in, in your mental health journey, I'd love to get to know a few sort of, you know, seminal moments from your, from your life. You know, these are moments that when you look back on your life, uh, are, you know, not, not, not necessarily positive or negative, just like moments that stick out in your memory as being integral in your, your journey as a feely person, as you said, as a feely human, as a, someone who's mindful of their mental health, just a couple of experiences that, uh, you want to share. Sure. Um, I'll share two, but let me start from the beginning. So I'm Chinese American. Uh, that's my heritage born in Taiwan and came to the U.S. when I was eight. And I'm the oldest of three boys, um, whatever effect birth order might have on me. Uh, grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. My parents used to be school teachers, and when they came and immigrated into the U.S., they took blue-collar jobs, ran a restaurant for a couple of years, and then a small motel business through my middle school and high school years. I was a computer engineer um, back in my college days. This is back in 88. So that puts me at age 54 this year. Um, And in 2000, when I was 34 years old, uh, I had a personal crisis with a job transition uh, that put me in the doctor's office, a psychiatrist's office, and I was diagnosed bipolar for the first time. And uh, looking at back at my first 34 years or so, uh, I think I'm, I was a high-functioning um, high functioning person with mental illness. And so because I could still hold down a job and because I had decent grades through school. I didn't feel compelled to uh, get help or get assessed. And also coming from a Chinese American, Asian American family background, we live in the shadow and in a culture of shame where we don't, uh, we, well, not, not that anybody likes to admit weaknesses, but in particular, there's a certain way that Asians don't want to, um, appear um, or ad- admit they need help for mental illness. Hmm. And so that was a, that was about a year to get up from the bottom and to recover and to find the right medication and the therapy to just reconstruct my mental and emotional and overall well-being. Um, and, yeah, so that was the first big pivotal point. I I had a 
career crisis and identity crisis. I spent 10 years trying to be a pastor and realized uh, pastoring wasn't the best fit for me, Hmm. uh, studying theology, but um, wanting to help people was what I uh, take away from that. I do have a big part of me that is is, um, sympathetic and empathetic to people. Mm-hmm. But because of my whole engineering and uh, family background, I was not in touch with my feelings yeah. uh, at all. It was very compartmentalized and just detached from uh, who I was. And I couldn't put f- uh, words to my feelings until much more recently. Um, I would say from 34 to 54, uh, I got healthier and I started to understand my feelings, but I was still in that journey and process of learning to name my feelings. Yeah. And, but I was functioning, functioning well and life was more enjoyable and fulfilling. So I was better overall, but I wasn't um, to the level of wellness that I am now. So my second crisis, or Can you, do you have a question um, at this point before yeah. I go to my second crisis? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I'm just curious, like, you know, you describe um, this, you know, getting getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I'm just curious, like, what what was your mental state at that point? Like, what can you describe some of the lead up to that diagnosis and what led you to to go to a doctor and, and, and seek that out because, uh, as you're describing, you know, you're, you're living in a world and you're older than I am and, 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 you know, stigma, uh, is even worse, right. Uh, further, (laughs) further back in history. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, added the added layer of being Chinese American and, and the stigma there. Um, I'm just curious, what led you to seek out that diagnosis and, mm-hmm. and walk me through some of your experiences in, the, in those mm-hmm. early days with, you know, coming to terms with the fact that, okay, I have mental illness and how that played out in your personal life and how that was met with your family and friends. I'm just curious mm-hmm. about those nuances. Yeah, I, I was uh, feeling... Um, seriously depressed and I had a, a suicidal thoughts and I could not function and I was desperate. And so those things put me in a place where I had to ask for help. It wasn't that I wanted to get help, but I had to get help. And Because you wanted uh, to live? Yes, uh, I wanted to live. I was too afraid to hurt myself. Hmm. So that was one barrier from me calling it quits. Mm-hmm. That um, I'm afraid of pain. And I did not want to cross the bridge of, well, how do I find the least painful way to end my life? And then I had a young son who was at the time maybe eight or nine years old. So uh, what little I knew of mental illness and suicide is that would not be a good thing for him and that would not be a good thing for my wife. And so I had some 
shreds of wanting to live. But I also knew that I, because I was hurting so much, I needed help to figure out how to live better. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know where to turn. And so the doctor was referred to me uh, from my pastor. Um, and what was, let's see, going into that exploration of uh, being diagnosed and getting therapy, um, my point of reference there was the only other person I knew that had the diagnosis of bipolar struggled to keep a job and his mood swings would be so high and so low and he would be often tempted to get off medication. And when that's my only reference point, I look at myself and I say, well, I'm not like that. So how could I possibly be diagnosed bipolar? It didn't make sense to me. And then yeah. back then in the, this would be what, 2000, this is the year 2000. There weren't, there weren't many books or uh, resources about bipolar. So the stories and the books that talked about having bipolar were just so dramatic whether it's shopping sprees or um, doing wild, wild things with other people or um, just picking up and moving cross country or just really strange and wild behavior. I, I wasn't tempted or doing that. And so I didn't know how a diagnosis of bipolar fit me and what I needed to do to manage that better. Yeah. And so the the year was trying to figure out well what what parts of it did fit me and was helpful to me to manage my thoughts and feelings better mm. yeah so that's what that was all about yeah and and can you please share a little bit about um the initial reaction from your family and and you know the the culture that you existed in and specifically the chinese american culture that you existed in at the time um well i did not if i remember right i did not tell my my parents or my brothers because i didn't feel safe there and then at home it was uh, in terms of with my wife it was giving just enough information to let her know I'm safe and I have someone that supports me because I didn't know how to communicate at home, uh, partly because I didn't feel safe and partly I don't think what I was processing could be understood. And so yeah. that's where I was at that time. Yeah. Uh, it felt like a very lonely journey, but it was a helpful uh, period of time. And I did find, or yeah, it took me a, a year to find enough of what I needed to get back to feeling uh, normal to function and to go on with life. Uh, I remember a few of my sessions with my doctor, my therapist, uh, he happened to be both. So he did the, both the medication and the talk therapy and some of, one of the things that he kept poking at was trying to find my motivation. 
And I wasn't in touch with it, so I <laughs> couldn't find it. The motivation for life, the motivation for why life is worth living, what's rewarding, and, and those things that uh, give you the energy and the impetus to push through hard things. Because yeah. we all encounter hard things in life. And in hindsight, I realize that that is an important piece uh, for finding the strength and the resolve to to live a healthier and better life and to know where feelings fit into that. But at that time, that was elusive to me. Um, and at that time, it wasn't critical for me to finding a level of wellness. So that's where that was at. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's scary, right? I mean, it's a scary thing to admit that. I mean, I think earlier you said weakness, and I, um, and I think you were saying it in the context of like it's not a weakness; it's just a thing that that exists, right? It's whether whether it's a some sort of imbalance in our brains or whatever, but it's 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 a thing that exists. It's part of us. It's not all of us. But, you know, it is still, it's scary to look at, right? Mm -hmm. Because, right, we, like you said, DJ, very aptly, we have these reference points in our culture that are based on a lack of understanding, right? You know, you have like the bipolar disorder person, the bipolar person who, um, or the person with bipolar disorder, I should say, who is you know acting manic right and they're they're doing things that are you know antithetical to living right or antithetical mm -hmm. to our culture you know that are scary right and and we think oh like you know and then we compare right yes um and it's that's why it's so important and i'm so grateful that you are in touch with that and you are sharing because the more we share the more examples we have of people, you know, finding the therapy they need or finding the medications mm -hmm. they need or, you know, exploring it. And that's so powerful. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for creating a safe place for more of those stories to be shared because oh, it, yeah. it is a very hard to find a safe place. And sometimes when I'm in my alone moments, even today, not today, today, but even in, um, in recent days that, um, I, I yearn for more safe places. Yeah. Cause I, I don't have that at my fingertips. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I do too. And in addition to that, it's so fascinating that like I, you know, in moments I feel exceptionally safe, you know, with my wife, Jessica, right? You know, she's the person I love most in this world. In addition to that, I can also still feel unsafe. My, you know, my depression and anxiety can make me feel unsafe, even in, you know, the, the context of this, you know, the safest and loving, the most loving relationship I've, I've had in life, right? Mm-hmm. 
and that's mm-hmm. and and those are the lies like and the false truths and beliefs that uh our our mental illness can dictate for us sometimes mm-hmm. well the the one safe place I, I know and I'm confident with is my with my therapist mm. so I have that once every two weeks or so mm-hmm. and so that that gives me an anchor kind of a, yeah. a, a sure place that I can be unfiltered and raw and safe yeah and yeah. I I'm not ready to test that in any other realms. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even, even at home and even with close friends, there's a level level of filtering that I still feel I have to do. Hmm. Can you, I mean, if you're not comfortable, it's okay, but can you give me an example of what that filtering looks like? Like, an example of like what you might filter out with Mm -hmm. a friend or with Mm -hmm. a family member? Well, in the social context that I'm in, uh, both in an Asian American world and also in a faith community that's Christian, uh, I am not free to speculate or ask questions that are uncomfortable. Whether that's uh, theological or political or cultural. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of protests. And there's just some things you can't say. (laughs) Because it's um, not just uncomfortable. It causes people to react with cancel culture, causes people to react with um, they don't know what you're saying, what you're thinking. And uh, for me, because I'm an ideas person, I, I personally don't mind going all over the map and just uh, exploring or even saying things that might um, might be unorthodox or... Uh, hypothetical. Hmm. But that's me. Those those are private thoughts that it's appropriate to keep private. So there's a level of of appropriateness, uh, not so much uh, the lack of safety, but there's some things that are just inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, both of those kind of conflate for me in those particular contexts. I see. Yeah. So I mean, there's I, times that I have said things uh, unfiltered because we're in a stressful situation and it caused pain to uh, my relatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and I think given our Asian, uh, particularly given the Asian cultural background, there's less exposure to feeling feelings and navigating and managing feelings that um, it's it's particularly challenging for traditional Asians to hear to hear the stress 
instead of just hearing the word words mm-hmm. being expressed in the stress. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something I heard recently that you have to listen beyond the words and you have to he- hear the feelings behind the words. And so in the midst of a stressful situation, you might say something that you don't mean. Yeah. Like you're not being helpful here. Uh, that, that might be true on a feelings level, but for uh, someone hearing that, it may impact them in a, in a more negative way than it uh, could and yeah. it can hurt the relationship. So I hear what be, you're saying. Yeah. I, and I, I do, I do think it's important to think of audience and, mm-hmm. um, and impact. I, I do think that that's very important and that's mm-hmm. that's an empathetic framework. I also, though, I think it's important to challenge ourselves in that where do we draw the line between, you know, self-censorship and who who is this for and how is it benefiting me or how is it like if i'm like i'm not saying that very well like if i for instance am a person who and i am a person who uh gets a lot of value um and healing out of sharing my story right and share and being vulnerable and sharing and and obviously i'm not dealing with um you know the the specific cultural perspective that you are dj but (laughs) my my healing journey is in vulnerability and then in the exchange of empathy that comes through vulnerability and that for some uh is sometimes hard to hear it may sometimes bring up (laughs) guilt or um shame or etc um how do I like, where do I draw the line between like, if I'm going to censor myself, like, isn't that taking away part of who I am and the the integral piece of my own healing? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's all, it's all personal and unique. That's just me. Sure. No, I'm not, I'm not challenging on that dimension. On that dimension, I, um, on that dimension, I've come to a point where I, am very open book and vulnerable. So when I do speak of being filtered and self-censoring, it's more of the uh, reactionary thoughts that I might have or the um, hypothetical or or, uh, fantasy or imaginary thoughts that I might have Mm. where, where it, where it can and it does cross a line of inappropriateness. <laughs> can you give me a specific so example that, of one of those? Because it's thoughts? because it's inappropriate. I I uh, am reluctant to okay. share those. Right. Okay. All right. And um, um, yeah. So so in the in the political realm, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're on one side or the other. Uh, it's really hard to say some things about President Trump or to say things about Black Lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, our culture today has made it hard to say certain things about you, either of those. 
that's as easy or as specific as I can point to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hear what you're saying. Our culture is uh, tremendously reactionary. And, and I think it's a result of the lack of being in touch with their feelings that we're talking about, right? Mm. As you know, DJ, like being in touch with our feelings, being curious about our feelings, mm -hmm. we build a internal language that can then go external and we're, we're developing emotional intelligence. We're developing, um, better relationships through that process. Um, because we're, we're understanding more of ourselves, right. And how we operate in the world and what serves us and what doesn't serve us. Right. And then when it comes to big, uh, challenging ideas, like the fact and this is my perspective, the fact that uh, our, my country, the United States of America, was built on the back of slave labor, mm -hmm. right? And um, I have, as a white person, uh, have been, uh, have, have had immense privilege and a leg up in all facets because our country is built in this systemically racist way. And I have been a part of that, right? Mm -hmm. And me speaking that out loud and saying that is uncomfortable. It's challenging. But these are the, like, the uncomfortable, challenging things in life are the things that we need to look toward and lean into because those are the places where we can break down our own biases and enrich our lives and learn from others. Right. And like, mm -hmm. to me, my perspective, like that is, that is the richness in life is learning and having an open heart to other experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a number of layers to that and it's part of the diversity and the beauty of being human and being a feely human that, Everybody has their own unique story and history and how they see the world and how they feel about things. And uh, on the personal level is one thing. And then when it becomes public, it almost becomes another thing. Yep. So as yeah. I'm thinking about our current situation, when black people talk about their feeling, it just comes across so intense that, some white people cannot listen to it. And that's where the phrase white fragility is referring to is that they can't handle the intensity of the raw emotions of pain and hurt and opinions. And uh, ideally, in an ideal world, people would mature enough to handle their own feelings as well as give space to hear others. But uh, until a person has done the hard work of resilience and, uh, for themselves and giving space to others, a lot of people just aren't there. All the more reason for what you're doing here at Feeling Human. Yeah, I, I think that's that's well said. And, and we, can, we can shift off of this topic. I, um, you know, it, it's obviously uh, prescient. It's also, mm -hmm. you know, it's what's happening now, but... Um, mm -hmm. So, DJ, uh, let's let's go back to you know you you have this seminal moment in your bipolar bipolar diagnosis. 
Um, and you wanted to share another moment. Uh, yes. Yeah, please, please share. Yeah, so from 2000 to about 2015, all of that was a private secret journey, which means that I had to carry the load by myself. And then by 2015 or so, I had a journalist from the OC Register find my personal website and found it interesting enough to interview me and wanted to feature me as a uh, as a personal story. And so part of my personal story was being diagnosed bipolar and going through that part of the journey and how that fit with my vocation and work and, and my website. And so the opportunity came to me that, Hey, would, would I want to, and would I be ready to publicly declare to come out and say, I struggle with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And the journalist was sensitive enough to to make sure that I was ready because that's going to come with some potential consequences that it will likely make it hard for me harder for me to get certain jobs, even though they're not supposed to discriminate, and people will uh, look at me and respond to me differently, knowing that's out there now because I've disclosed a vulnerable part of myself that other people are not willing to in their interactions with me. And so that, that was uh, 2013. I came out and made it public that I struggled with bipolar disorder. And out of the extended network of people from friends of family and People in the Asian American community, there's a number of people that saw the article and they they would say, hey, I saw the article. But they wouldn't say any more than that, knowing knowing what was disclosed, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so it- it, um, They can't even name it. it, Yeah, they couldn't name it. But at the same time, there were others who saw the article and opened a door for new relationships- and new conversations because it gave them permission to share that they were not alone, that they had a relative or a friend that was struggling. And now I'm a safe person they could talk to. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's the hope uh, that I had for sharing that publicly, that uh, when I share my own struggle and how I found hope and help, that they too can find hope and help and they're not alone. So that was a huge moment. Um, what else happened from that? Well, I'll just say DJ that, that, yeah, that is a powerful moment and a courageous one. And it, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it comes with, uh, scrutiny, right. It comes with, um, all of those things, but the most important thing is that you are being true to who you are right? Mm-hmm. You're seeing yourself for who you are. And that is, that is a, a magical place to be. And I'm so happy and grateful that, that you got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple more as, as our, uh, um, yeah, a couple more I'll mention. So in 2017, February 1st, I was on a high mood swing 
So I still have my high and low mood swings, but they're not as dramatic. And they're typically well-managed. But on that day, I decided to let myself go higher because it feels good. And I was frustrated because in January, I was at a conference where I was sick. And I was sick with laryngitis and Mm. bronchitis and insomnia. And the convergence of those three just brought a lot of frustration took me two or three weeks to heal and kind of told myself the next time I have a high mood swing, I'm going to enjoy it a bit more. Well, on February 1st, I enjoyed it a bit too much. Uh, I did go on a shopping spree. So I have a, I still have a, or I threw the receipt away, but I had a picture of a receipt that went from my head to my toe. So it was quite a shopping spree at Fry's Electronics. Uh, I oh, wasn't. yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the place to go if you're going to spree away. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't buy anything for myself. I bought things for friends. So uh, I'm not sure what that's about. But And uh, I did a bunch of things that day. I was just super energetic, uh, very happy and joyful and felt like I could do anything. And then at Anaheim Packing House, I was supposed to meet my wife and son for dinner and I wanted to go to this secret restaurant there called Blind Rabbit. And it's a secret restaurant, so many of your listeners may not have heard of it. But now it's COVID, and I don't know what's going to happen to it. Uh, I thought I was invisible at moments, and I thought I was doing Jedi mind tricks so that I could get in. And eventually, <laughs> I did get in. Yeah. And then some of the details are fuzzy, but... By the end of that evening, I was arrested and taken to the psych ward with a 5150, which is a medical code for a 72-hour mandatory hold. Right. Now, never in my – I didn't even know what what, uh, 5150 was, and certainly I never imagined that I would be in a psych ward. Uh, But there I was, 72 hours, rested – Saw other people that, uh, compared to me, seemed a little, um, had more symptoms that were obvious why they were there, but uh, I'm in no condition to see what my condition was. So uh, there I was. I got stabilized. I got uh, released uh, after the 72 hours, which I'm told is unusual that people would get stabilized so quickly. Uh, but the next nine months was hard work getting well. Uh, the first half of those nine months was just trying to figure out the medication. So I had to redo the mix of the right medication that would help me manage my moods and my brain chemistry. Um, I was resigned to the fact that I would never experience a normal life like I used to. Hmm but my therapist fought for me and believed in me that I could get better and I could experience life well again. And in hindsight, um, I did get well and even better than I used to live. Um, And a greater and deeper appreciation for life. So 
now I can say uh, each day just having breath is a real gift. And, um, but, but during those nine months, it was moment by moment, hour by hour, hanging on to dear life because I was, uh, I wasn't, well, it, I took a month off from work. Um, I started back up half time and regained enough energy and capacity to start working again. But, um, yeah, there were days that I was just, <laughs> there were days when I would be in a daze. Hmm. And what got me through was just reciting Psalm 23, Lord's Prayer, as a way to stabilize my brain and to put some good thoughts in there. Because my thoughts were either blank or they were harmful. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got through. So here I am. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. How, what, so during that time, what was your support like? You know, you know, obviously reading uh, your Bible and, you know, I, I'd imagine you were going to therapy at that time. Like what, mm-hmm. how were you, how were you, how, how did it feel to like, you know, to, to feel like prior to that, like feeling, you know, kind of stable and, and then having, you know, this, this episode, how did that feel? Did, did you feel shame? Did you feel like, what did it feel like? Yeah, definitely shame. Um, Helpless. Mm. I was literally totally helpless. And I had to constantly remind myself, I'm not alone. There's help and there's hope. And just uh, each day, just tell myself, get out of bed. Each day, tell myself, just take a walk. Each day, particularly the dark, darker days, just go out for a walk, get my body moving, eating. So everything had to be a conscious choice. Uh, fighting for life. Mm. And I had to tell myself, life is worth living. Um, e- even if I were permanently decapacitated, because that's what was on my mind. I was totally helpless. Life would never be the same. Uh, I I remember a few moments when I would be uh, eating lunch at Chick-fil-A, and the Chick-fil-A that I went to had a person that was, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, intellectually challenged. And I was thinking to myself, I could probably do that kind of jobs and that's about all I could do. Mm-hmm. That's the way I saw myself in terms of my capability. I couldn't read, so I was not reading my Bible. Uh, I couldn't think clearly i couldn't plan i couldn't make decisions i was uh surviving and existing just trying to get well and eventually slowly over time i did get better but holding to onto life was a big part of it for the first four months 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I gave uh, the, the support. You also asked what support looked like. So support was that my wife and son, I gave them permission to keep an eye on me so that I don't hurt myself. And if they notice me doing anything weird, that they had permission to say something and do something, do whatever they need to do to make sure I stay well. Yeah. So I put that in place. Um, and then when I need help, I would tell them I need help and they would not push back on me because sometimes they might challenge me and say, Oh, you could do it. You could do it. I was like, no, I really need help right now. Yeah. Please. It's so important to be clear in our communication. Um, you know, especially for those listening who are with someone partnered with someone who, you know, has mental illness or vice versa. You do, you know, it's communication is so important and it's so, like having those support systems are, you know, whether it's in the people in our lives or, you know, um, you know, crisis text lines or call lines and things like that, you know, community groups, you know, whether in church or, or you know, our, our communities like, um, yeah, are very, very important and, and have been important for me, you know, in having connections with friends and, you know, you obviously having that support in, you know, your community and your loving family who, you know, who just want to see you live, you know, and be happy. Right. And, and sometimes it, it's a struggle to get there. Uh, and, and they can't necessarily fully understand, but they know that they love you. Right. Yes. Yes. And I got to experience that. Uh, my greatest fear at that time was they would just leave me cause I was such a basket case. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I don't, I don't recall me sharing that fear, but it so helped me that they reassured me that they wouldn't leave me. Mm. So somehow they met me where I needed uh, help that I didn't know I needed help with. So that was a real gift. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Um, can you help me understand what uh, I, I think I saw this on your on your in your bio or your website somewhere? Mm-hmm. What multi Asian means and and what that what that what that means to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote a book titled Multi Asian Church: A Future for Asian Americans in a Multi Ethnic World, and I think post uh, Obama getting elected as the first black president, there was some conversation about how we're in a post-racial world. But in the past four to eight years, we've come to realize that, no, we're in a highly racialized world that is so volatile and toxic. More than ever, it just kind of went below the surface for a little bit. And a lot of it has come from the history of black and white tensions and slavery and I think because for us as Asian Americans, we come at the racialized society of America in a different way, and we can navigate the conversation differently. And the book was a invitation and a call for us as Asian Americans to contribute and change the conversation. 
I do it from a faith perspective because that's where that's the easiest access point for a group of Asian Americans to do something together. Because I think uh, Asians in particular they prefer to do things together rather than solo. Mm. And uh, it's also been part of my research over the past ten years from my work. So um, that's what multi Asian is about. Um, so through through my relationship and through my blogging, I just plant seeds of thought, and I get invited into some of those meetings and conversations and uh, consultations about how to navigate the topics of diversity. Hmm. And so when those doors open, then I get to um, speak into that and prompt some change. And then the other dimension uh, somewhat related to that as Asian Americans, there, there are just unique issues that we have from our bicultural background, growing up an Asian family, but having to uh, learn and grow up in, an, in a Western society and how that often causes a identity crisis feeling like we don't belong anywhere hmm. and we're misunderstood. And then you add on top of that, the layer of struggling with mental illness and try and find conversations that about mental health from a minority perspective. Cause we have such a, we have a unique context that where a lot of psychology is developed from mostly a white dominant culture framework. Yeah. That it, it, doesn't scratch the itch that we have. And so uh, one way that I've uh, contributed to that is in 2018. So after after I got well, I found a friend that started a podcast with me called Erasing Shame. And each week we would record a podcast on live stream. So there's no editing. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. puts you, it puts uh, you, us uh, as co-hosts and occasional guests that we would have on, on edge because <laughs> we, we know we're not being recorded and it's their edit. So any words that come out is, is out there forever. And um, we just want to create a space for healthy conversations about honest living and address all of the different aspects of shame. And after couple of years of that we've done four seasons of that we also did an uh, a series a special summer series specifically about mental health in asian american communities and just bringing stories and exploring and surfacing the issues that are particularly unique uh, for asians and asian americans has been helpful to many and um uh, i I think it's Brene Brown that says that shame festers in silence. Mm -hmm. And so the opposite of silence would be healthy conversation. And so we found a really streamlined, easy way to just change, change the game that uh, for people who are looking for uh, someone they can relate to. And we, put on Facebook and YouTube and the web and podcasts. So it's freely available. I just found a, found an easy way to make a contribution that would be helpful to people uh, who may be Asian, who may be Asian American, who may be male. So it's even harder to find men <laughs> that would be willing to talk about this issue. And then, so the, the picture that I had in my mind is if, if there was a 
Asian American person struggling with mental health. They can't talk to their parents. They can't talk to their friends. They're in their own bedroom with their door closed. Maybe they'll look on social media and try to find something, a story or something that would give them hope. And they maybe they'll find us and then they'll take a step towards health instead mm. of a step towards desperation. And so uh, that was the rhyme and reason behind that. And just grateful that I could find co-hosts to have that conversation because it's not a monologue. It needs to be a conversation. Yeah. And so every episode is a conversation. And I also wanted to do it not with professional therapists because sometimes it just gets so technical. A lot of the therapy or psychology podcasts, there's a lot of jargon. Yeah. And uh, I know in my own struggle, boy, it would have been so great if there was someone that I could just hear to hear from and relate to that understood my struggles. And so I want to offer that to others. And uh, that's a way of giving back. And that's been helpful to others, also helpful to me to realize that, hey, all the things that I went through, all the challenges and hardships is uh, helpful and valuable to others as well. Yeah. No, it's it's such a great gift that you can offer your community and specifically, you know, the, the Asian community, I think, uh, that's tremendous. And I, I, I love to hear it. I, I love that you have had the courage to, to really be open about your mental illness. And, you know, I can't say it enough and we've said it here today, but like talk about these things because it, it opens mm-hmm. up the doorway for others to see and feel mm-hmm. less alone. And then it is rewarding for yourself too. Like the doing this show has certainly been rewarding on that, that level as well. Like I get so much from my guests, um, uh, you know, just like you, you know, and it's, uh, it's such a, yeah, it's just such a beautiful experience. And I, I'm so grateful that you're doing it. Thank you, and I'm grateful for what you're doing. And I think as long as we still have the stigma and shame around mental illness and the struggle of putting words to our feelings, let's continue doing what we're doing. There's there's plenty to do. There's no competition. And we can use all the help we can get. So Yeah, we're in this together. Yes, we're in this together. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, DJ, we always start to wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes. These are people mm-hmm. in our lives who are wonderfully empathetic. They could be people we know personally or even characters from our favorite stories. Um, I will name my empathy hero first to give you a moment to think about yours. Um, my empathy hero this week is my friend, Becca, uh, I think I've named her in the past as an empathy hero, but she's top of mind because I recently had a conversation with her uh, just about, just I think last week or the week prior, uh, I was talking about, I was talking to her about a recent low spell uh, in my depression. And uh, when I get low, I, I really sort of hone in on this deep core thing that I have, which is I don't deserve love or attention or joy or anything. And, and it's sort of, it's a belief that I, I seem to can't shake emotionally. And she 
<laughs> she uh, she said she told me uh, I don't like that for you, um, mm. and it and it's and I I don't either, and I appreciated her saying that, and I sometimes need that reminder from others in my life. Um, so, you know, Becca is my empathy hero for for calling that out and and just being there for me and listening uh, as I as I as I talked. So yeah. That's such a great question. I'm so glad you have Becca in your life. Yeah, uh, the one you. I want to give mention to today was an earlier phone call I had with a guy named David in Atlanta. And uh, one of my irrational fears, since this is a safe place, I'll go ahead and share. One of my irrational fears is calling someone, just picking up the phone and initiating the call. Uh, I have, I just have uh, dread and doubt. And would I be bothering somebody or interrupting somebody? And what if they can't talk? And just all the feelings that get in the way of just me making a phone call. Uh, it would be life would be so much easier if people call me instead of those spam bots. I get so I get more robots calling me than I do humans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I called David today. And he, I said. Um, Thank you for taking my call. He says, yeah, sure, anytime. And I felt that was a great word of empathy for me and really encouraged me. And um, when I can remind myself of how empathetic he's been uh, to me and for me over the years, uh, he's he's a hero to me. Mm, I love that. And I, I'm with you too, DJ. I, Whenever I have to take a, whenever I have to make a phone call, I feel like, how do I do this? Like, <laughs> it's just like this anxiety of like, I think I'd rather text, but like, you know, yeah. it, it's like a, yeah, it's an anxiety for me. Yeah. It's, it's so strange. Yeah. Uh, but it, it definitely gets in the way of me doing some things I want to do. And so even though I've got motivation to call the, the feelings get in the way. Yeah. Uh, but that's part of being feeling human, recognizing that. Absolutely. And we can start learning how to uh, put it in its right place. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, uh, DJ, where can the feely humans out there connect with you and learn more about the wonderful work you're doing? Yeah. The easiest way would be to go to erasingshame.com. I would say my personal name, but then I got to spell it out and all that. But. So if people just go to erasingshame.com, you can contact me there. You can listen to the conversations we've had about erasing shame and mental health and getting in touch with feelings and having healthy relationships. We'd love to hear from you. So awesome. thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you, DJ. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.